Ephesians chapter 4, verses 20 through 25. Hear now God's word. But you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus. That you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, put away lying. Let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. And thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said. As we approach the Bible, there are many interesting things to be discovered in the Bible. It's a big book. It's written by God. It's complex. It's lovely. It's full of poetry and stories and all kinds of surprises and things to be discovered. And that's exciting, and that is something we should look for and and appreciate and revel in as those things come to our attention. And some, it seems, in the church, some are gifted at being able to see some of the things that might be hidden to the rest of us and to be able to bring those out. But I think a word of caution needs to be made that many of the things, perhaps most of the things in the Bible, are quite simple, quite plain. Therefore, are sitting there right in front of us, easy to be seen and understood by everyone, but also easy to be ignored. It's easy to be tempted to go on that hunt for those um, mysterious things, those more exciting discoveries, and to miss the very plain things that are set before us, the simple things. Remember, the Bible is given to us to change our lives, to conform us to the image of Christ, and therefore it speaks plainly, it speaks clearly, it speaks to very practical things in our lives, and it's important that we, we as we come to those routine things, the things perhaps we've heard a thousand times, and it's easy to blow past them, to stop and listen, and to understand that the Spirit of God takes ordinary things and turns them into extraordinary things. That the Word of God all by itself is powerful to change us. And so I urge you today, as we deal with one of those plain texts, to listen with those kinds of ears and with that kind of heart, ready to be transformed and changed. Paul, having set out the dramatic contrast between the life of the unbeliever and the believer, between the old man and the new man, now turns to some very practical applications of this truth, uh, really throughout most of the rest of this book. So he's laid the doctrinal foundation, the theological foundation, and now he's going to begin to make some specific application. In effect, he says, since you aren't what you used to be, in fact, you've become something entirely different, therefore it needs to be seen in the way you interact with others. I think we're going to see this especially as he's going to focus on families, husbands and wives and children, but in every other relationship as well. This truth which is in Jesus, this truth which you have learned in Christ if you have truly understood it, will inevitably lead to application. And if there's no application, then I would suggest 
there's no understanding. Sometimes someone will say something like, well, I understand it, but I can't explain it. And I'd suggest that if you can't explain it, you don't understand it. You should study it until you understand it, not if you understand it. And when you understand it, then that will be manifest in the way you live. This reminds me of the rebuke that Jesus gave toward the Sadducees, these people who had, on the face of it, knowledge of the Bible. They could quote Scripture, and he said to them, You do great error, not knowing the Scriptures, nor the power of God. I never cease to be amazed at how little this sinks in with us. As I've said many times during this series on the epistle to the Ephesians, all of our problems would be solved if we would understand and apply the teaching, the teachings of this book. And so I hope that the light will come on you even today, come on for you even today. Now I want to say something about Christian ethics. Ethics is simply a system of right and wrong. It is a way we define good and evil. All people have the law of God impressed upon their hearts, according to the book of Romans. They all know the basics of right and wrong. All people have an ethical system. Now, whether they understand where it came from or how it works or that they have a name for it, that might not be the case. But it is an inescapable concept that everyone has some concept of right and wrong. However, counterfeit ethical systems seem uh, seek to replace the triune God with a false, uh, with a false God, and therefore a false ethical system. Our ethical system always is derived from whoever our God is, whoever the authority is. False in that they necessarily leave Christ out. Thus, they are not Christian ethics. The teaching of the Apostle is dependent upon what he has already taught in the first three chapters or so of this epistle. And that's why he begins in verse 25 here with the word, therefore. Since all of this is true about Christ, about you, about who you are in Christ, about how things have changed in Christ, how he is everything, he is the center of everything, he is the unifier He is the Savior. He is the one that gives life. Since that's true, then it's going to change how we live. His and our claim is that there is nothing like Christianity. It is unique in its character. Unlike other systems, it is not a mere collection of moral and ethical principles. Those systems existed before Christ. To rely on on these is to deny the uniqueness of Christ himself and to make him just one more among many other so-called great teachers. But Paul writes in Philippians 1.27, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's a distinct call and claim. Our reason for ethical behavior is personal and always refers back to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Who he is, what he's done, how he does it, why he does it. All of that is contained in our ethical system. We are Christians. We are followers of the Son of God. 
We currently live in a world, for example, that is full of moral indignation all the time. Somebody is outraged over something. For example, Hollywood preaches to us continually about human virtue of some sort, something we all need to be up in arms about, according to them, while they are completely undermining biblical virtue and living personal, unethical lives, according to the Word of God. Moreover, the the world's ethical perspective, the Bible tells us, is perverted. It is twisted because of man's sinfulness. And therefore, they often call evil good and good evil. So Paul will now begin to enumerate some important areas where this distinctively Christian ethic will be or should be seen in our lives. And there's now, again, through the rest of this chapter, into chapter 5 and 6, going to be a whole list of these kinds of things, and we'll look at them individually. And so he begins by a simple declarative statement. Put away lying. So let me begin by saying to all of you, you're a bunch of liars. Isn't that offensive? Somebody calls you a liar, in your first reaction, I want to say, no, I'm not. But you are. It shouldn't offend you because it's true. We frequently hear politicians who have been caught in a lie. I think of one who in particular said he fought in Vietnam and didn't. And to explain that, he holds a press conference and tells us that he is sorry that he misspoke. In other words, he lied. We're all liars. In fact, many of us are accomplished liars. We can lie without a word, we can lie with a look, we can lie by letting something go unsaid that should be said to correct something that's wrong. There are many ways to deceive and to lie. This is set over against the fact of what what does Paul say? Jesus is the truth. The truth and the lie. The most fundamental and essential characteristic of the Christian life is truth. Remember, Paul said that the old man is growing corrupt according to the deceitfulness of lust. In other words, lies and deceit lead to corruption and death. That's why, that's what we're being saved from. God, who desires all men to be saved and what? And come to the knowledge of the truth. Paul punctuates this when he writes to Titus and he refers to God who cannot lie. That's the very essence of the character of God. He cannot lie. So when someone sometimes tries to trick you with one of those questions, can God do everything? You should immediately say no. God cannot lie. Because that would be a contradiction of his nature. He is the everlasting truth, and we have been brought into eternal fellowship with the truth. 
And so Paul's not telling us to put away lying simply because honesty is the best policy. Honesty is the best policy. But he is saying way more than that. He is saying that we have been reconciled to God and we say that we know God and that we are in communion with Him as John emphasizes the fact that if a man says, I know Him and does not keep His commandments, he's a liar. And the truth is not in him. It has to be seen, not just spoken. King David understood this after his sin with Bathsheba. Psalm 51.6, as he cries out to God in repentance, he says, Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts. Truth all the way down inside. There can be no pretense, no lie before God. Hebrews 4.13, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to, whose, to the eyes of him with, to whom we must give an account. Or as the children's catechism, when it asks the child, Can you see God? No. But he always sees me. While truth represents God, the opposite is true of the devil. He's a liar. He is a liar who lies. Note that that is our problem as well. We're naturally like the Pharisees that Jesus argued with in John chapter 8. Verse 44, he says, You are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He, he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources. I think we'd say his own nature. For he is a liar and the father of it. It's what he is. The light of the gospel, though, has shone on the lie of the devil, and we are called out of darkness into the light. Let's think about one of the first big events that God records for us in the book of Acts in the church, Ananias and Sapphira. Here we can see the huge difference between a lie and the truth. These Christians had agreed that those who wanted to could sell some or all of their property and give the proceeds to the church or sell none of it. They didn't, there was no obligation here. So let me read this story. It's an interesting story to find there right in the opening book of Acts. Here's the church getting started. We've had Pentecost. We've had Peter preaching to the crowds and the multitudes. We had 3,000 saved and brought into the church. And here we are, fifth chapter of the Acts of the Apostles, and God puts this story right in the middle of all these exciting things that are happening. It's a warning of how the lie can disrupt everything. But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession, and he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? 
So you got the picture. Ananias sold this land. He told everybody, I'm going to give the proceeds to the church. So he gave some of it, with leaving the clear impression that he was giving all of it, when in fact he was keeping some of it back. While it, and Peter says, why have you... Uh, lied to the Holy Spirit, kept back part of the price of the land for yourself. While it remained, it was, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not your own to control? You didn't have to give it. Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? Why have, uh, excuse me, you have not lied to men, but to God. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things, and the young men arose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. End of story. No, God is going to jump up and down on this, if you will. He wants to drive the point home. Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened, and Peter answered her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. Then Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead and carrying her out, buried her by her husband. So great fear came upon the church. And upon all those who heard these things. I'd like to suggest in our day we'd be outraged that God would do such a thing. It was just a lie, wasn't it? Tells you our view of sin and God's view of sin is quite different. In fact, we can go further back in human history, right? In fact, the whole Bible is a story of lies and what happens to liars. And we can discover that the very first sin was a result of a lie. This is where all of our problems got started. The world is in a mess because of a lie. In 2 Corinthians 11.3, Paul says, As the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness. The serpent whispered a lie about God to Eve. Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said You shall not eat of the tree of the garden. Every tree of the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. So Eve is actually verifying the word of God, that she clearly heard what he had said. It was not a mistake. She heard what God said. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. This lie led to the fall and the consequences of that lie are still rippling through the world. The original sin was produced by a lie and that original lie compounds every other sin. You commit a sin, any sin, and you don't want to be found out, and you don't want others to know, so what do you do? You lie. Billy, did you take that thing that wasn't yours? No. 
But then the lie needs another lie. And then it needs two or three more lies to cover up that lie. And then it snowballs, and that is how habitual or compulsive lying gets started. You see, the truth is simple. The lie is complicated. It's hard to keep up with the lies. And the liar's life becomes more and more complicated because as soon as we leave the truth, we get tangled up in this web of lies and deceit. And as they often say, it was not the original crime, but the cover-up that did the men. The end result of lying is misery. The misery of guilt. The misery of the harm that it does to other people. The alienation from the life of God that Paul has talked about. Unhappiness and suspicion and lack of trust and heartache. That's what lies always do. And that's why Paul tells us the very first thing, after he's given all this theology about us being in Christ and being new men and not old men, after all of that, he starts, and the very first thing that he tells us that must be put away from us is lying. Remember, our primary problem is selfishness. We want to be our own God. Unlike the animals, we were made in the image of God, and therefore we express ourselves perhaps more than any other way with our speech. I would commend to you Tom Wolfe's book, The Kingdom of Speech, that develops this theme very well. Speech was intended to be our glory. It's how we praise God. It's how we rule. It's how we exercise dominion. It's how we commune. It's the thing that sets us apart from the rest of the creation. Speech was intended to be our glory. But sin has defaced that glory. How often we use our words to lie and deceive or to, another form of that is to exaggerate or to withhold a bit of information or to fabricate something. The purpose is to promote or protect our pride and to feed our selfishness. Isn't it interesting that even though we're all natural liars, all of us, nevertheless, there's nothing more offensive to us than for someone to lie to us. Why did you lie to me? We always seem a little bit shocked that someone else would actually lie to us. We think liars are despicable. Yet it's the most common and universal of all sins. We hate it. We denounce it. And yet we're guilty of it. It doesn't matter how educated or uneducated or refined or cultured. We find it everywhere. But now, everything in Christ has been made new. You have become new creatures, and the first thing this new creature in Christ does is put off lying. The truth has become your new best friend. Having put off lying, Paul says, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbors, for we are members of one another. We are members of families. We are members of churches, which are big families. We are members of one another. 
And if you lie to another member, you are lying to yourself, you are damaging yourself, because there's no such thing as an independent existence. Think about what happens when a husband lies to his wife. It works the other way too, of course. Who gets hurt? She's hurt, the family's hurt, but the husband is also hurt. He's lost respect and trust. Ephesians 4.28, Paul says, He who loves his wife loves himself. So what happens when someone lies? What happens to trust? Without trust, there's no communion. You can no longer communicate. Because how much do you believe? And you see, lying makes unity impossible. As children of God, as children of light, we belong to the truth. Our Father is the one who cannot lie. Therefore, we must speak the truth with our neighbors, even when it hurts, even when we might get in trouble. You see, if there's lying, I want to ask the question, is there any lying going on with you right now? As I look at this, I have to assume there is. Too many times I get a call as a pastor. Pastor, I've been doing such and such, and I hadn't told anybody. Or I've been caught, and now it's come to light. I've been doing this for the last year, the last six months, or last week, or my whole life. So what are you lying about right now? What are you covering up? What's the secret in your life? If there is anything, I want to urge you today as a follower of Christ to come clean, to tell the truth. And so, um, I want to remind you that God already knows about it. And if you're a child of God, and the Lord loves, he chastens, and so in time he will expose it anyway. And so it's time to speak the truth to your spouse or your children or your parents or your boss or your neighbors or whoever. And so as we are about to pray, I'm going to give you a few moments to go before God and be honest with him. Remember, he already knows the truth about you and confession is simply agreeing with God. When I confess to the truth, I'm agreeing with God. And so, if there's something you need to agree with God on about you, I want to urge you to do that. We're getting ready to come to the table, and we'll say a bit more in a moment about how the table plays into this. 1 John 1, 8 and 9. You know, usually the, we usually do 1 John Um, uh, 1-9 if we confess our sins. But let me back up. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. You know, we lie to ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, particular sins, particular lies, he is faithful and just to forgive us of those particular sins or lies and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. 
and his word is not in us. So let's bow our heads. I'm going to take a few moments of silence for you to do that, and then I'll close us in prayer here. Lord, you are our Father, the very essence of truth, and the devil is the father of lies. Help us to be your true children and to put off all lying and start speaking the truth to our neighbors. Help us to constantly be aware of the fact that we are members of one another and that true communion can only be had in the truth. Forgive us and strengthen us now as we feed on Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. Amen. I want to read a parallel passage again. Paul writes something similar in the epistle to the Colossians. In Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. If then you were raised with Christ... Seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things of the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, Passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when when you lived in them. But now you yourselves are to put off all these. Anger, wrath, malice. I don't want to run through these too fast. Anger, wrath. Malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man, who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. And so we come to the table to remember the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that means we have at least begun to perceive of what he has done for us. And therefore we cannot help but be transformed and changed by it. We will live and act toward others not based upon what they do or don't do now because we belong to Christ and we live for him. Lord, how do you want me to respond? How do you want me to live? How do you want me to speak to others? Well, I know he wants me to begin by telling the truth, to speak the truth to others, to do it in love, of course. 
And so we start there. So when we come to the table, I would like to suggest that as we come remembering those things, that we come here to, remember, get refocused, to begin this new week with a new commitment, to go home, to go to our house, and to treat each other the way Christ requires us to do so, starting with speaking the truth to one another, of being completely honest, and encouraging one another and responding to one another in the ways that he has called us to. And again, the rest of Ephesians will go into more details about other areas of about how to, how to talk to each other and how to deal with anger and how not to be bitter and how to forgive and how to do all those things that are helpful and not harmful to one another. So let us do that now as we come to the table. Most high and mighty ruler of the universe, by whom we have been established and preserved, we thank and praise you for your favor shown to our fathers and mothers and for your faithfulness that has continued toward their children and their children's children. Indeed, you are a covenant-keeping God, and there is no shadow of turning with you. Especially we thank you for your great love in sending your unchanging Son to be the Savior of the world and in calling us out of our sins and into, into fellowship with him. And we call upon you to always grant us your Holy Spirit through whom we may grow continually in thankfulness toward you and also into the likeness of your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. We bless you, for you have blessed us in our callings. Teach us the lessons of contentment, to serve you gladly where we are. Even in our failures, we pray that you would conform us to the image of your Son. Grant to us a fervent love of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Enable our brotherly love to continue so that the world might see that we are disciples of Christ. Bless now this Lord's Day as we rest and fellowship and feast. Continue your mercies toward us, we pray, that all the world may know that you are our everlasting Savior and mighty Deliverer, and that we might honorably bear your holy name through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Yeah.